Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Tonight we're in the book of Amos. We're in chapter 6 and 7. I say that by faith. (laughs) Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we have spent the last 30 minutes singing our heart, telling you in song that we love you, that we trust you, that we want to obey you. And now, Father, we continue in our worship. We give you our attention. We sit here with hearts open and Bibles open and minds ready and lives ready to put into practice those principles that your Spirit shows are in your Word. Thank you, Father, for the family. Thank you for our spiritual family. Thank you for the comfort that we have just gathering here and sitting with one another and singing common songs common in communion with each, of, with each other. And thank you for your promises to us, Lord. Before we begin, Father, we want to pray for those in our body who are afflicted. As sicknesses, colds, fevers, etc. have hit so many different ones, we pray, Father, that you'd raise them up, heal them, cause their body to be rested, We pray, Father, for those who are afflicted by emotional ailments, stricken and discouraged. Encourage them, Father. What a delight to be able to stand in the gap and pray for them. And now, Father, may a sense of your presence rest here tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we have seen, Amos had the difficult task of being a simple man, a farmer, a sheep breeder from Tekoa down south in Judah. He had the hard task of leaving a very simple life and bringing a very difficult message to the northern kingdom. I imagine it was difficult for him to leave such a wonderful, rural, easy-going life in comparison to being a prophet in Samaria, and to bring a message that would be rejected and would be twisted by some. It would be tough. His message had to be very honest and very straightforward, and we've already seen that it was even a bit harsh Now, there's a television show that's been out for a few years, and uh, some of you have seen it. I was watching it last night, American Idolatry, I mean, American Idol. (laughs) And there's three judges on the panel. One is sort of, you know, fair and easygoing and tries to be balanced and give some encouragement, but also bring the truth. The other one is, she's a little bit ditzy and sort of all over the place. And then there's one judge who's very brutally honest. You know the one I'm talking about, Simon Cowell. 
And so somebody will sing, and if he doesn't like it, he'll say, that's absolutely deplorable. You know, something like that. Amos is the Simon Cowell of the Old Testament. His message is not sweet like Amos. It's not emotional like Jeremiah. It's rough. It's bristly. It's brutally honest. He would say to the nation of Israel, that's absolutely deplorable. A tough, hard message to bring. Five message of judgments. Hear this word, he begins the first three. Woe, he begins the last few. Billy Sunday was an evangelist. Latter part of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. Billy Sunday was known for his sort of wild antics on stage. He was a professional baseball player turned evangelist, but also for being very authentic, straightforward. Didn't pull any punches, didn't add any sugar to his message. And it got him in trouble. And so he began one of his messages one night and he said, They say I rub the fur the wrong way. I do not he said, let the cat turn around. (laughs) Israel was a big cat up north. And Amos knew that that big cat needed to turn around if it wanted to feel any kind of good stroking from that prophet. And because they were unwilling, they were saying about this prophet, he rubs us the wrong way. Well, we've seen chapter 5 how He continues to hear the word, or hear this word, and now the other judgments are coming in chapter 6. We mentioned that there were five messages. And we said last week that the last couple of messages don't begin with the phrase, hear this word, but begin with the common prophetic utterance, woe. And we mentioned that in Hebrew it's oi, is the translation. So... You can picture Amos saying, Oi! And he'll give the pronouncement, the declaration of judgment. And the term woe or oi in Hebrew was typically given as a lament or a wail of grief when somebody had died. It was very common to say that word, to express emotional grief when somebody had died. And it fit perfectly in that Amos was singing a funeral song we saw in chapter 5. Take up this lamentation, the Lord said in chapter 5, verse 1. So he begins by singing this sad, sad dirge, if you will, a funeral tune. He was the funeral singer. He was a prophet with an attitude in your face, as we saw. And he continues now his diatribe against the country. So again, verse 1, woe to you. Now whenever you see that, Don't just think of oi or woe like bad, here comes a tough message. But you also might want to think of it like, well, if you were riding a horse and you tell the horse, whoa, stop, slow down, look around, take heed, take notice. Not just woe, bad, woe on you, but woe, slow down. 
I heard about a guy who wanted to buy a horse, and he went to a preacher who was selling his horse, and it was a fair deal, so he purchased it. The preacher said, now my horse is a little bit different than the horses you're used to. You can't say giddy up. This horse has been trained not to respond to giddy up, but he will respond to praise the Lord. If you say praise the Lord, this horse will get up and go like lightning. So, okay, praise the Lord. Yeah, I got it. Okay, now, when you want to slow down, don't say, whoa. You have to say, amen. The horse has been retrained, doesn't know what woe is. If you say amen, the horse will slow down right on the spot. Great, I got it. Sat up on the horse, was ready to go, smiled at the preacher, and he started out. And he said, praise the Lord. And off that horse went, galloping across the prairie, across the plain. This guy thought, wow, what a great deal, what a fast horse. But the horse was picking up speed getting out of control, a little faster than what this rider could bear. Plus, this rider knew the landscape and knew that that horse was running straight toward a ravine. Well, he panicked. And he forgot. You know, when you're in a panic, you don't remember the instructions all the time. So he shouted out, Whoa! Nothing happened. Whoa! Nothing happened. And then he thought, what did he say? Slow down. Nothing happened. Finally, as he's right at the almost edge of the ravine, he remembers and he says, Amen. The horse just stops right on the precipice. The guy's sweating bullets. But he's safe. And he's so grateful. He looked up and he said, Oh, praise the Lord. That has absolutely nothing to do with this study. (laughs) Other than the nation, it was time for them to, whoa, slow down. Listen carefully. Take heed. Open ears to what God was saying. Because they were on a beeline toward their own destruction. And Amos was there to tell them the truth. Praise the Lord. Now, remember in chapter 4, he he begins by bringing a message to some of the notable, complacent women, and he uses a metaphor that's not too kind. He says, you cows of Bashan, he calls these women of Samaria. Well, now he's going to nail the men, the notable men, the ones that were the leaders up in Samaria, those that had caused the downfall of the nation, given a bad example. They will be more in the purview of this prophecy than the others. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. Notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. It's a little interesting in that this prophet has a job to speak to the northern kingdom, the city of Samaria. And yet, here he says, Woe to those who are at ease, not in Samaria first, but in Zion. Now that's down south. That's part of the two-nation kingdom. Now he's not even bringing a message to them. He's supposed to be bringing a message only to the northern kingdom. But he says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. So it's as if the prophet, though bringing a message for Israel, is bringing also a message to Judah. And there were similarities. 
both Zion and Samaria were centers of worship. Zion, the center of true worship. Samaria, the center of false worship. There were more similarities. Both of them were blessed, Zion and Samaria, with natural fortifications, hills that surrounded those cities that made taking the city very difficult. It took the Assyrians three years before they could capture the capital city of Samaria because of the natural fortifications. Like Mount Zion, Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord will be like Mount Zion who cannot be moved because of the natural fortifications. And there's another similarity. Both Zion and Samaria had become luxuriously complacent in a spiritual sense. Not only that, but although the Assyrians will take the northern kingdom, they did. That's a matter of history. They never took the southern kingdom, but they almost did. They threatened to. Now, you may remember, if not, go home and read on your own, not right now during the study, Isaiah beginning in chapter 36, 36 and 37. We read that it was in the 14th year of the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah that the Assyrians came and surrounded Jerusalem and told King Hezekiah, Surrender now, you're dead meat. Now I'm paraphrasing. Surrender now, you're dead meat. No other nation has escaped from us. You won't escape either. And the guy who was the spokesperson for the Assyrians was a general by the name of Rabshakeh. And he gave a very scathing denouncement upon the king, upon Judah, and upon God. And even a stern letter of rebuke was written to the king, King Hezekiah. And the people inside Jerusalem were shaken in their boots, were dead, they've come, were surrounded. But I love the story. It says King Hezekiah took the letter, brought it, spread it out in the temple before the Lord and prayed, Oh God, we need your help. Isaiah the prophet came in and said, You have nothing to fear. Because you trust in the Lord and you brought this matter before God and you're trusting in Him at the end of your rope, God will save you. Do you know the rest of the story? Next morning they look out on the horizon And 185,000 Assyrians are dead on the ground. An angel of the Lord went through the camp of the Assyrians that evening. One angel destroyed 185,000 soldiers. It's great when you have angels on your side. Don't mess with angels. You've heard of touched by an angel? Those guys were punched by an angel. 185,000 of them didn't get up. So already the Assyrian threat was there in Jerusalem, not only up north. So woe to those in Zion as well as those in Samaria. He says, he continues, this sheep breeder with an attitude, go over to Calne and see. And from there go to Hamath, the, the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than those kingdoms? Or is their territory any greater than your territory? Now, quite honestly, we don't exactly know where these cities were. The first two. The third we do. Gath was down in Philistine country. 
The first two, some scholars think, is way over by the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley. Others point to it as part of uh, the Syrian camp east of the Jordan River. Here's the point. Those other cities that are listed here were not spared. They were taken over. They were judged. So do you guys think that you're going to escape when, spiritually speaking, you haven't been any better than they? So go check out your history. They haven't survived. Neither will you. Here it is again, verse 3. Oi! Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who caused the seed of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. It says, Woe to you who put far off the day of doom. They were denying that doom would come. All that will never happen. We're the great covenant people of God. Here they are living in luxurious, apathetic denial of the impending doom while they're inviting God's doom by their own actions. Verse 5, Who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David. Here they were. You get the picture. Stretched out on wooden beds with inlaid ivory. They had it made in the shade. They didn't care about spiritual matters. They denied that God's judgment was coming by their actions. They're inviting God's judgment. All the while, they're drowning out the warnings of the prophet by entertainment. Turn up the stereo louder. Put on another song. Let's have another party. They wanted to drown out the inevitability of judgment and the warnings of God's prophets by entertainment. They were into music, even inventing new musical instruments and using the excuse, well, so did David. David did that. We're following David's great example. He was a musician. True, he was. But he used his music for praise and worship, not for meaningless entertainment to cover up a message that God was trying to get to their hearts. So, the woe comes. And look at verse 6. Who drink wine from bowls. Boy, you know you're, you're bad off. You, you've reached a bad alcoholic state when there's no discretion at all. You don't use a cup anymore. Just give it to me in a bowl. A vat. Flagrant. Flagrant in their violation. I was reading a news article in Reuters News Service about criminals in South Korea. I don't know if you caught this news article. They polled 109 incarcerated, jailed thugs off the streets of South Korea. And they discovered that these gangsters were more contented and satisfied with their own personal lives than police officers. I thought, now that's interesting. So I read the article. They polled them and they said 79.3% of the gangsters said that they feel somewhat or very satisfied with their personal life. 80% practically. While only 65% of the police force in South Korea felt 
partially, somewhat, or very satisfied with their own personal lives. The criminals went on to explain the average thug in that prison had been making $4,255 per month in their organized crime. A better pay scale than many of the police officers in Seoul, South Korea. So they felt very good about it. As the ancient people of Israel, these notable chief citizens, men and women, who had been so indulging in their sin but felt very satisfied with their lifestyle. Which means when judgment comes, the higher you are, the harder you fall when they have the Assyrians come in and destroy their lands because they're living so well, it will be far worse. The judgment will become more pronounced. So verse 6, You drink wine from bowls. You anoint yourselves with the best ointments or lotions. But you are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Joseph is a name that is a son, one of the sons of Jacob, had two sons that took two tribes, but it becomes here another word for the nation itself. You don't care about your own country. Therefore, they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at the banquets shall be removed. God is saying, since you are first in rank, first in importance, first in influence, it only makes sense that you are the first to be led away into captivity. The Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. I pay particular attention in the scripture when I find out that God hates something. I want to be quick to find out what that is so that I don't ever do that. That makes sense. And just like when you find out what God loves, make particular note of that so that you can be involved in that which He loves, what He seeks, what He enjoys. And over and over again, we find out that God hates pride. Pride of any kind, a a proud look, a prideful heart, one's pride in wealth or education or status or spirituality. The Bible says God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So He says He hates it. Continuing, Therefore I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Then it shall come to pass that if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. This is all a picture of the coming captivity. And when a relative of the dead with one who will burn the bodies, picks up the bodies to take them out of the house, he will say to the one inside the house, Are there any more with you? Then someone will say, None. And he will say, Hold your tongue, for we dare not mention the name of the Lord. Now that's an odd text that we just read. It's a little bit tough to understand exactly what is happening. Here's what seems to be happening in my reading of it. It seems that the prediction is that the Assyrians will kill so many people in Israel when they invade, that there will be a danger of rampant spread of disease due to the amount of dead bodies that are 
exposed to the air, and the air could carry these germs. So that the only solution is cremation. Gather the bodies, put them in a pit, burn them. That was typical in warfare. However, according to Judaism, they didn't cremate bodies. In part because of their belief of the resurrection. We don't cremate, they, they buried. However, in dire circumstances, get the bodies together, cremate them. So here's the picture. They're going from house to house. And they would call into the house. Is anybody in there who's alive? And there'd be one person huddled in the corner and the news would come back, there's one survivor. You that are firefighters or you work as first responders or if you've taken the CERT training, Community Emergency Response Training, you know that they teach you when you go up to a house during or after a disaster and you're going to go inside to make the examination, you call out. Is anybody in there? Can you hear my voice? If you can hear my voice, identify yourself. So a relative says, any survivors, there's one survivor. And just when the person making the observation and the rescue notices that person, and that person looks like he's going to say something in gratitude to God for being the only one who survived, the rescuer says, no, don't even mention God's name. If we mention God's name at all and he hears it, it might bring another avalanche of his wrath. Don't even mention his name. All of this to point out, this is how far they had fallen. Here's a country, a nation, a people who once worshipped God, loved His name, praised His name. Now they, won't, they don't even want to mention His name. Here's a nation that once walked with God. They were once spiritual, and now they're superstitious. Like, if we mention God's name, He's going to hear it, we're going to tick Him off, and it's going to get worse. How they had fallen. Don't even mention, they said, the name of the Lord. Now, when I, when I go through and I discover who we're dealing with, we're dealing not with just any nation, we're dealing with God's people, the covenant people, the people of Israel at that time. And I think, hmm, I want to make sure as I examine my own life that I'm making progress, that every week, month, year, I can look back and say, God's working in me. He's changing me. I'm growing in this area. And so I ask you, are you making progress? Is there progression or is there regression? With these people, there was blatant regression. They, they had gone so far backwards in their backsliding, they didn't even want to mention God's name. Sad, but I remember a guy who was a friend. I remember him witnessing. I remember him saying, oh, praise the Lord. Not like the guy on the horse, but really praise the Lord. And then as time went on, and I caught up with him again, and I heard him take the Lord's name in vain. And I thought, how is that possible? Walking with God, praising His name, now taking the Lord's name in vain. No progress, only regress. For behold, verse 11, the Lord gives a command. He will break the great house into bits and the little house into pieces. No one's exempt. The palaces, the shacks, 
All of it under God's judgment. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? What would the answer be? No. Ridiculous to think so. It's too uneven. It's too dangerous. And certainly you don't plow where there's rocks. You've got to clear the rocks before you plow, before you sow, before you reap. It would be unfruitful. So here's a place. It's ridiculous to even think that you would have rocks where horses would be or oxen would plow because it's uneven, it's dangerous, it's unfruitful. So God is saying, well, it's, it's ridiculous what you've done. You've taken something sweet. You've made something bitter out of it. Justice is sweet. Injustice is bitter. And that's exactly what you've done internally as a nation. So again, verse 12, Yet you have turned justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood or bitterness. You rejoice over Lodabar, who say, Have we not taken Karnaim for ourselves by our own strength? Now these two towns were east of the Jordan River. And at one point, King Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, conquered them. Now they're bragging in their own military might, in their own national power, instead of boasting at all in the Lord. But behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. Way down south is the Arabah. So, here's a sheep breeder, Amos, a farmer, with an attitude, with an edge, in your face, the Billy Sunday, let the cat turn around, warning of impending judgment. It's actually good for them to hear. Now, sometimes we think, oh, don't talk about judgment. People don't like to hear it. Of course they don't. That was the whole point. Amos was hoping that in hearing this message, they go, you know, I think this guy's right. I think the cat ought to turn around. Let's turn around. I remember as a boy, all my mom had to say when I was a brat, all she had to say is, your father will be home soon. It changed my whole... I had an attitude check instantly. Oh, yeah. I certainly didn't want to deal with dad. Mom was much smaller. She's only five foot tall. My mom. My dad, six foot two. My dad, stern, hammer drops, disciplinarian. So when she said, Skip, just a reminder, your dad will be home soon. Oh, right, right. So Israel, judgment is coming, said the prophet. It should wake them up. Living in the days in which we live, I realize things could happen quickly in terms of international affairs and events. Quite a, a string of things quite rapidly could bring us toward the end. It doesn't take much. It's like a tinderbox. Now, I'm not here to predict the end of time or anything like that, but on a national, international scene, things could break down very rapidly. Which means our attitudes, our touch with this world should be a light touch. So the message is very applicable. Now in chapter 7. 
In chapter 7, there is a change, and we'll only have time to cover one chapter. It actually continues 7, 8, and 9. is the final section of the book. Remember we outlined the book for you that we said chapter 1 and 2 are the roarings of judgment. Chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, which we just covered, are the reasons for judgment. Now, chapters 7, 8, and 9, I call the representations of judgment. There's a series of visions that represent coming judgment upon Israel. That outlines, in my mind, the entire book. So now... The prophet sees something. He doesn't just hear the word of the Lord. He sees in visual form, in vision, something that's going to happen. You know, these prophets saw sometimes wild, crazy, weird things. Now, a dream is different than a vision. A dream happens when you're asleep. A vision happens when you're wide awake. You might see the same thing in a vision as a dream, except there's a cognitive element. You're awake, aware, and then you see it in the here and now. He saw a vision. Remember, Joel says, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. This guy gets a vision, and and some of the visions of the prophets were, were pretty out there. I mean, it's like, it's like when you eat pizza or sausage with a lot of chili, and then you go to sleep, all the weird technicolor things you see. (laughs) Except he was awake. These were visions. There's three of them, the ones we'll cover tonight. He sees a, a vision of a swarm of locusts. He sees, second, a vision of a consuming fire. He sees, third, a vision of a plumb line, a dangling plumb line as a builder would use. So you might say these visions represent bugs, burnings, and a builder. That's what the vision was about. Let's look at the first one. Thus says the Lord, uh, thus the Lord God showed me, behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. So it was. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray, O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. Now these visions, very short, at least in written format, are what we would call in the film industry trailers. You know what a trailer is. You know when you go to the theater and you come early and you see previews of coming attractions? Honestly, that's my favorite thing in a movie. I really, I can see the trailers and not really have to see the movie because I know they pull out the best parts. And it's hard for me to sit through an entire movie anyway. I get very bored with that very quickly, unless there's a lot of popcorn and stuff. Anyway, uh, a trailer is a preview of coming attractions. What, What this vision is, is a preview, a trailer, a spiritual trailer, preview of coming attractions. He sees something that is coming in depictive form upon the nation of Israel. Okay, the first one is the locust swarm. Now, there were two crops per year. This is how it worked. Two crops of the grain that came up and brought sustenance to the land. The first mowing, or the first harvest, the king took. That's the tax. 
Whatever grows up, you give it all to the king. So he and the government officials can eat of it. That's you paying your taxes. Therefore, the second harvest, the second mowing, is what the people of the land depended on for their sustenance. So if that crop doesn't show up, you starve to death. Great famine in the land. The prophet sees a swarm of locusts. Now, the the typical locust swarm in the Middle East were these little bugs about two inches long with a wingspan of four to five inches wide. They were the short-horned locusts. They bred very rapidly in desert places. They swarmed in clouds of a cloud a hundred feet deep, thick, tall, and four to six miles long. So you see this cloud coming towards you on the horizon. And they say when that hits your area, it's like a total eclipse of the sun. All is dark. Total devastation. Every green thing is taken so that the ground after a locust swarm looks like it's been burned, scorched with fire. Back in 1866, one of the most famous ones in recent history, hit the country of Algiers. The famine that followed from the decimation of all the green shrubbery killed 200,000 people. Devastating. That's what he sees in this vision. But the prophet says, O Lord God, forgive, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented, changed his mind. It could be translated concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. This bothers a lot of people. If you have an old King James Bible, it says the Lord repented of it, or here it is relented. It's a softer word. But it implies the idea of changing. Now, the reason we have problems with it is because the Lord, by His very character and nature, never changes. I am the Lord, I change not, said the Lord. God is not a man that He should lie, or the Son of Man that He should relent. So what does this mean? This is called in theological terms, an anthropomorphism. That is, God depicted in human language so that we humans understand an activity of God. It's a literary device. God doesn't change His mind at all. But what the vision does is incite the prayer of the prophet so that God can stop the judgment, which is what he always wanted to do. He just cooperated with the prayer of a man by giving him a vision so that he cry and go, no! And God would say, okay. But from a human perspective, anthropomorphically, it appears as though God changed. And he goes, okay, I've changed my mind. God never changed his mind. It's a literary device to describe an activity of God in human language. Now, closely associated with that anthropomorphism is what theologians also call anthropopathism, pathos, emotion. It it would appear, in other words, that God's emotions well up, that he's moved emotionally by the prayer of this pleading prophet, and that therefore he relents. So anyway, I'll tell you this when I read this. This is what I think about. A nation owes a debt of gratitude to prayer warriors. The fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much, said James. The ancient nation of Israel owed a debt of gratitude to Elijah who prayed and brought rain on that nation. 
and this nation to have Amos their prophet intercede for them and pray. The very ones they don't appreciate are the ones they should. Now imagine what will happen one day when all the prayer warriors, what Jesus called the salt of the earth that keeps the meat from corrupting, when the salt of the earth, when all the Christians who influence all, the, all of God's covenant people are taken off the earth at the rapture, and lets this world corrupt and putrefy quicker than any other time in history. No wonder Jesus said it will be such a time that history has never seen in terms of the breadth and the depth of how bad it will be. So here's a prophet standing in the gap for the nation. Verse 4 is the second vision. Thus the Lord God showed me, Behold, the Lord God called for conflict by fire, and it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. And this is what he sees. This is his vision, his trailer, his preview of coming attractions. And then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray, oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, says the Lord. Boy, it's scary what some of these prophets saw. Do you remember your dreams growing up? Do you ever have a scary dream? There were times, and children have them sometimes, called night terrors. Nathan had them growing up. I had them growing up. Certain things that I saw in that dream world, and of course we all have dreams where we're running and that monster's there and, you know, catches us and but the terror that you can get by seeing something, even though it's not really happening. Imagine seeing a vision like this from God, this consuming fire. Now, what is it exactly he's seeing? Honestly, we don't know. I'll give you three guesses. Guess number one. The consuming fire he's speaking about is a severe famine caused by severe drought. That even the the water spouts underneath the ground are dried up, or the fountains of the great deep, as it says. Guess number two. It's speaking of uh, intense summer heat. It just uh, got so hot, or he saw that it would get so hot during the summer that these fires would break out everywhere. That can happen when it's extremely dry. If there's lightning, or if if, uh, just the heat can cause the shrubbery to become quite apt to burn. Possibility number three, he's speaking about a fire-like decimation of the land by the Assyrians in their advancing armies. And they'll point out that there were three stages, three successive attacks, one by King Pool, P-U-L, second by King Tiglath-Pileser, I'm not going to try to spell that, and third by King Shalmaneser, that these three successive marches on the land represent the, the fire that consumes and that he's praying God stop it. Well, it didn't really stop it because they came in 722 and wiped them out. It could be that the prophet's prayer stopped it a little while. We don't exactly know. You've seen the t-shirt. I think it's still around. I remember a few years ago it was very popular. No fear, right? No fear. It's It's a brand name. I was in the airport, I don't know which airport one time, and I saw a No Fear t-shirt, but it said this, absolutely, positively, 
most definitely, without any doubt, no fear. And then in parenthesis, no, not even a little bit. I looked at that and I laughed. I thought, well, that's, that's cute. They're just, you know, it's the no fear t-shirt on steroids. <laughs> this guy wants me to know he's not afraid of anything. And then I thought of somebody wearing that in the tribulation period. It doesn't fit. It wouldn't work, right? Because Jesus predicted it will be a time when men's hearts will be failing them from fear because of the things that will come upon the earth. Nobody will buy a no-fear t-shirt in the tribulation. And it wouldn't have worked either during the reign of terror by the Assyrians. But all of that was a preview of coming attractions that he was seeing. Then he showed me verse 7. Behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. Now a plumb line is a string with a weight at the end of it. It's like an ancient level. You plumb a wall. You hang the line and you construct a perpendicular, a perfectly straight wall by using the plumb line. It was a builder's device to build accurately. So he sees it. And he sees the Lord holding it. Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with a sword against the house of Jeroboam. What does this mean? Here's the vision, and there's no prayer against it this time. Just God says, I'm setting a plumb line. Even as a builder would use a device which is the standard by which he can build things straight, God is saying, I will be perfectly straight and upright in my judgment. My judgment will be so thorough, so perfectly thought out, because I alone am the judge of all the earth, righteous judge, that I will judge Israel by a perfect standard. You know, never forget that. When God judges the world, and He judges all unbelieving mankind, He does it by His perfect standard. You never have to worry that God won't be fair. By His very nature, as omniscient, knowing everything, every motive, omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, being everywhere for every secret conversation and every secret thought, He alone can be the perfect judge. There's a plumb line. And so we'll read about it one day. We'll get to it. You already have, probably on your own, Revelation chapter 20. John sees the great white throne. Why is it great? Because every single unbeliever who has ever lived on the earth will be there. It's a huge throng. And it's a white judgment. Why? Because white represents purity, flawlessness, holiness, uprightness. There'll be no partiality at all. There will be only one judge, no jury, but a judge. A sentence, no appeal, no parole, adjudicated by the only one who could judge the whole world with a plumb line, the great white throne judgment of God. So God says, I have a standard. I'll judge by that standard. In a sense, we also have a plumb line. That is, we have... In written form in the Bible, God's standard of what is right and wrong, what He loves, what He hates. How to live our lives and live them straight and upright by a plumb line. 
You can trust the principles in the Word of God, but you must apply them. You can't just read them. We can't just underline them. We can't just memorize them. We can't just become familiar with them. We have to take the principles and actually live according to the plumb line. And isn't it wonderful to know that God is... There's no guess. We have the plumb line. Did you know that in the state of Indiana, there are six hotels, inns, within national parks or state parks of Indiana? And within these inns, in each of the hotel rooms, the Gideon's Society has placed a Bible, like they do in many hotels around the world. But because these inns are in state parks... Wouldn't you know it? The ACLU pressured the Indiana Department of Natural Resources to remove them. They said, we won't remove them. So the ACLU demanded that a pamphlet be placed in or next to the Bible. A warning pamphlet. And you know what it says? Warning. A literal belief in this book can be hazardous to your life and health. You know what God... God would have His own warning label. Disregard for this book can be harmful to your life and to your health. It's His plumb line. It's His plumb line. And when He judges ultimately... At the end of days, it will be according to righteousness, the great white throne judgment. Perfect plumb line, perfect standard. And then Amaziah, verse 10. Now this is a parenthetical portion, we call it. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, said to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. He's a false prophet. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. That was true. <laughs> they would be. Just wait around. That's just the trailer. Where do you see the, the movie? And Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer. Flee to the land of Judah. Go back home where you belong. There eat bread, and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and the royal residence. Some of you are in the school of ministry. Some of you want to go to the shepherd's school. I applaud you, but let me warn you. If you want to serve the Lord and be known as a servant of the Lord and a preacher of the word, you effectively get a bullseye painted on you. Get used to it. Get used to it. When Jesus cured the demon-possessed man, all the people of Gadara came up to him, and you know what it says in the Gospel of Matthew? They begged him to depart from their midst. Please, Jesus, do please leave us and never come back, they said to him. And so they tell this prophet, go away, go back to Judah, never come here again, never set foot again. Jeremiah faced that. He was lowered into a dungeon. Six times in the book of Jeremiah he's attacked. Rough ministry that 
Kai had. He saw no fruit. He saw no great results. But he faithfully preached the word as God's messenger to that nation. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet. Look, I didn't get any formal training. I didn't sign up for this. But I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. God called him while he was being a sheep breeder, following the flock. And God will call different people to different tasks while they're doing their stuff, their job their ministry, their involvement. Just be faithful right now. If God called you to breed sheep or tend sycamore fruit, do it with all your heart. Oh, but I, I hate this sycamore fruit stuff. These sheep stink. I want to do something else for the Lord, for God's glory. In His time, just follow the sheep. Just pick the fruit. In time, as you are on your way, following after the sheep, the Lord soon enough will bring you to that place of spiritual fruitfulness. So he's telling his testimony. I, I, I didn't want to be a prophet. I was happy doing this, but God, as I was doing it, called me up here. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. Ooh, that's, that, that's interesting. Look back at verse 11. Amaziah says, For thus Amos has said, and look what Amos says in verse 16. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. In other words, you know, Amaziah, it doesn't really matter what I say. And it doesn't really matter what you say. But I want to tell you what the Lord says. Are you ready, Amaziah? Here it is. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not spout against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife... Amaziah will be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in a defiled land. And Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. So, Amos, the Simon Cowell of the Old Testament, who got in Israel's grill and said, That was absolutely deplorable to Israeli idol. That ends chapter 7. We'll pick it up and finish next time this book. So, what about that warning label? Disregard for this book could endanger your spiritual life and health. We are so privileged to be able to gather and read and study and, and understand not just a few psalms or the gospel of Matthew, but the depth of even the Old Testament. But then, as we do, we're confronted with the truth. We often see ourselves as we do. And I believe every time we have a Bible study that that spotlight shines in some area of my life, our lives, your life, and God says, I'm dealing with that. What will you do with that? What will you do with that? I believe the end of every service is an opportune time for 
and especially that last song, to, to pray that in and let the Lord deal with us. Don't be like that wealthy Chinese businessman who came to America, never heard of one, but he saw his first microscope and he was dazzled by looking at petals of flowers and crystals and he just thought, I have to have one. And he bought it and he brought it back home to China to show his family and friends. And so before dinner one night, he took a bit of his favorite meal rice and he put it on a little platelet and he put it under the microscope and he was aghast when he looked and he saw those little bugs crawling around, the little microscopic things crawling around on his favorite food. What is he to do? It revealed the truth. You know what he did? He went out and smashed the microscope. (laughs) He didn't want the very implement that told him the truth about his life. Our hearts can never become hardened, should always become softer as God speaks through his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the very enriching time we've already had tonight in worship and the Word. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is faithful to speak, to deal, to remind. And we pray that we might be shaped into the image of Christ. We pray, Father, that rather than thinking, somebody I know needs to be molded and shaped by this message, we would just let it do it in our lives. We would let your spirit work in our hearts. Deal with us. Shape us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.